because the kinds of things that technical economics seeks to concern itself with, it views to be fundamental truths, not things that are specific to place or time. So this title completely confuses my economist colleagues. Why is a technical economist writing about, first of all, a particular time, 21st century, and then something called Asia? It's part of what I want to try and explore uh, in terms of the large forces that Rosemary has described. I have an answer to this question. That answer is maybe. <laughs> you know, that answer is not at all interesting, unless perhaps you feel strongly the answer should be yes, or equally, you feel strongly the answer should be no. The answer maybe doesn't carry very much currency. The way in which I want to come to that answer, I want to argue, is what makes for the academic or scholarly, whatever scholarly interest there is in this project. So I argue that although I set this out as a question, and as a question that I want to deliver an answer to, it is much more the way, the set of results, the set of findings, the thinking that lead to that answer that are actually much more interesting. Now, when someone asks the question, is 21st century Asia's, it suggests that before the 21st century, whatever the 20th century, was not Asia's. And what is interesting here is that if is that there's a shift. Now it turns out that although you know my economists, many of my economists colleagues don't find great traction in thinking about that question, I've been lucky enough to meet a whole community, you know, entire profession in international relations who find this question particularly interesting. And uh, a subgroup of that think about this in terms of what they call a global power shift. So when these scholars that I talk to now look at this question, they say, ah, what you're asking about is, is there a global power shift occurring from where the 20th century was plainly that of the United States or that of the West? And you're asking if there is a power transition occurring. If we view it in those terms, what this is a question about is a question about global power shift. But taking one step back from that, it's a question about how world order is changing. Now, when I speak to these same scholars, again, who are not from the same tribe I originally come from, we all have a different understanding of what world order is. So I have to tell you what my definition of world order is before we plow into the not particularly interesting answer to this question, and what I hope is a more interesting trajectory that takes us towards answering the question. World order, in my reading, is a distribution of power across nation states and a shared set of understandings between nation states about the actions that they can undertake. This allows for how there might be some part of the world, the Soviet Union, that has an understanding about its role in some other part of the world, the Middle East, say. That's quite orthogonal, quite different from that that we view in the United Kingdom United States that is part of this collection of understandings, but what we're interested in is the set of shared understandings. And some of those shared understandings might be thin and deep. So if world order is shifting, then what I'm trying to ask about is how that distribution of power is changing. So what I want to do in the 45 minutes, that, uh, 40 minutes so I've got in the talk, before we turn to Q&A, is cover three things. I need to tell you, just I need to tell my economist colleagues, that there's actually some empirical evidence, some facts going on here that make this question not simply a hypothetical what if world order is changing, what if power is shifting. There have to be some facts here that make the question particularly compelling. I want to go through that set of facts that, you know, the set of facts that I think all of us know to a different degree, maybe in different dimensions, but I want to set down a set of facts that justifies the second part of this discussion which is the problem of world order. World order in the sense that I just described, and world order in the sense that's interesting for this question, because one of the implications of the distribution of power across nation states and the set of shared understandings among them is the dynamic that drives that configuration of power. And it's that dynamic that I want to be thinking about, that I want to think about in terms of a global power shift 
and the degree to which uh, that global power shift will actually change the configuration of world power. Now, I told you that there's an answer to the question that I posed. And I said that the answer was maybe. At the end of the talk, I want to convince you that this gives me the justification for yeah. why that's maybe. This is complete gobbledygook. It doesn't have any bearing on anything yet in terms of the real world discussion of world order. It is what, from an economist perspective, would be referred to as the Ramsey problem. The Ramsey problem is what economists write down and say, this is the set of forces that I'm trying to understand. There's no Asia, there's no 21st century in it, but it describes my understanding of the set of forces at work, and it describes what I think will happen. So this Ramsey problem, which in my accounting is what describes a rational world order, I want to get to. And it's gonna, it's a slide that I will repeat later on. The bottom line of this is that it is a world order has to have some motivation, has to have some purpose. And the purpose that I lay out for it is that it maximizes the well-being of humanity. Now, in the real world, the, my realist friends say, that's complete nonsense because world order comes from nations having a certain distribution of power and then contending one with the other. And that's absolutely right. But I want to try and use this economist Ramsey problem perspective to think about exactly that realist position. I want to think about the optimization problem that world order solves. And I want to understand sufficient features in this configuration that is world order that can then help me address the question, is the 21st century Asians? That question, as I said, and its answer, taken in the abstract, might be interesting for a certain sort of mathematical problem, and a modeling problem, not necessarily interesting from the perspective of these larger set of issues. So let's plow into these larger set of issues. What are the facts about world order? What is the fact about the configuration of the distribution of power across nation states, how is that changing? And how does that bear on this possibility of there being a rational world order? Now, when we talk about the configuration of world power, I think we should do that literally. I don't think we should just sit down with a table that lists countries, the United States, Soviet Union, China, and so on down the list of 200 or so nation states, and then try and read from that what the configuration of world power is, I think we should go to the world. And here's the world. This is a map of our planet taken at night. Now, there's some standard jokes that we can make. Why would someone want to take a picture of the Earth at night? It's like that joke about you know, the science program in a particular developing country sending out a rocket to explore the sun and point, you know, the, the other scientists around them pointing out to them that's, that's ridiculous. Your rocket will melt long before it gets to the sun. And then the developing country scientist says, ah, we've solved that problem, we'll send up the rocket at night. Well, here's a picture of our planet taken at night. What the fact does it tell us about the world? Well, what it tells us very clearly <coughs> is the distribution of lights in the nighttime sky. The distribution of lights in the nighttime sky at this planetary scale tells us where people live, and where people live at this scale is also where they work, where they play, where they add value, where they create wealth, where they engage in political activity. So at a planetary scale, if you're talking about world order, it is this scale that I want, to, I want us to be engaged with. Now, this configuration of lights in the nighttime sky, our eye is drawn to certain features about this. One is the concentration of lights along the transatlantic axis look across the continent of North America and Western Europe, brightest spots of light in an extended way that light up the nighttime sky. There are other splashes of light, obviously, Japan way out to the east, the eastern seaboard of China, parts of Southeast Asia, most of Africa, unfortunately, remains dark. A lot of Latin America remains dark, and Australia, for all the wonderful friends that I've got there, shows very little by way of observable economic and political activity. And in this planetary, in this view of the planet, the answer to any question about world order or global power shift, or whether the 21st century is going to be Asia, is very simple. 
everything remains transatlantic. Yes, there's a little bit of activity way out east, Japan, East Bay Seaboard of China, but most activity, most human activity, and therefore most political activity, most policy making, most writing of the rules of the game, most solving, you know, solving global problems of global public goods, establishing international policy, constructing international regimes, all of that's got to happen around the transatlantic axis. And that's a wonderful narrative. You know, my, my presentation and my conversations with people who are arguing that no global power shift is occurring are very short. Both the presentation and the conversation is very short if this is the end of the story. This is not the end of the story because this is a picture of our planet taken not this year, but 30 years ago. The concentration of lights in the nighttime sky around the transatlantic axis was a pronounced predominant feature of our planet's economic and political activity 30 years ago. What's interesting to us, what's interesting from the perspective of answering the question is 21st century Asia's answering the question about global power shift or how world order is changing, is to ask if this picture is changing. Now, it's a lot harder now if we try and think through the dynamics of this distribution of lights in the night and sky. Because what we'd like is a movie that shows how the luminosity of different parts of the Earth is changing. And then when we do that, our eye doesn't pick up on that particularly well. Because the luminosity is kind of a, a gross feature. We don't, we don't accurately measure that, certainly from an eyeballing perspective. Although this establishes the reality of the world 30 years ago, Trying to understand the dynamics of this is a little bit trickier. So what I did was something different. I said that when you look at this picture of lights in the night and sky, and our eyes drawn to the transatlantic axis, what our eyes drawn to is the center of gravity associated with this distribution of lights. So if I measure the luminosity of different parts of Earth, and then I give that lumin I give each location on Earth a weight. And then I look at the weighted average of all of these points. This is a problem that we solve in sixth form mathematics. If you've got a collection of points in space that have certain weights attached to them, there is a center of gravity, there's a central tendency for how all these weights co-evolve. Now when you do that, you can then find the world's economic center of gravity. You might find the world's light center of gravity. I did something that cuts, you know, that goes closer to what you and I are interested in. I measured GDP. Measure, I measured economic value being generated on different parts of the planet. I attributed to different locations on Earth how much economic value was being generated. I used that the same way that I used this proxy of lights and light and sky. I used it as a proxy for thinking about human and political activity. And then I asked where the center of the world is. This is where the center of the world is. In the 1980s, the world's economic center of gravity was roughly that point was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. To absolutely nobody's surprise, because if you look at this picture, obviously the center of the world is in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. So in 1980, which is when that picture of lights in the nighttime sky was taken, the world's economic center of gravity sat in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Now here's the interesting fact that was uncovered in the calculations. If you redo that computation of the world's economic center of gravity over time, which you can do because we have measures of economic value on different parts of our planet. And you can track where the world's economic center of gravity is. It turns out that its trajectory is what's depicted here. The world's economic center of gravity last year sat in the Arabian Peninsula. In other words, in the last 30, 35 <coughs> years, the world's economic center of gravity has tracked 5,000 kilometers across the surface of our planet, three quarters of the Earth's radius. Now, when you unpack the numbers, it didn't do that mechanically or linearly. And it didn't do that monotonically. It did that in jerks and starts and in reverses. Because every now and then, the east, or whatever was attracting the world's center of gravity, whatever was creating greater luminosity on the eastern side of the planet, would go through a financial crisis, would go through some business cycle downturn, would suffer some political crisis, there was huge disruption of economic activity, and then when the West continued to grow strongly, 
that would pull the world center of gravity back. And in fact, when you when you dynamicize this picture, it moves in jerks and starts. Some some three-year intervals, it moves a lot east because the rise of China, the rise of the continued strength, economic strength of Japan, the strength of India, the rise of Southeast Asia would be a strong pull for the world center of gravity east. But every now and then, there'd be a crisis, and then it would go back. But the secular movement is that over the last 35 years, the world's economic center of gravity has steadily shifted east. So that in the 35 years up until 2015, it had tracked 5,000 kilometers across the surface of our planet. Now, let's be clear about this center. When it was sitting, when the world's economic center, because you might say, well, what was going on in the Arabian Peninsula that makes that so interesting from the perspective of the world's economic center of gravity. Notice that when we began this track and the world's economic center of gravity was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, we said that that was completely reasonable, even though the eye makes obvious that absolutely nothing was happening where the world's economic center of gravity sat. It simply happened to be the point that was about 50% distance between North America and Western Europe, where it actually sits might or might not be something particularly interesting. It just shows a balance of forces across different parts of our planet. And what we conclude from this is that it's being in the Arabian Peninsula, in the Persian Gulf in 2015. That particular location by itself need not be interesting, but it shows that the balance of forces is moved east. Now, very quickly, when I point this out, to you know, my friends in international relations and political scientists and, and other observers, they say, well, that's fine. That shows the world's economic center of gravity moving is east. There are other interesting things associated with that. The patent landscape of poverty has changed completely, hand in hand with how patterns of growth across our planet have shifted the world's economic center of gravity east. We know that you know, poverty reduction in the eastern side of our planet has been quite dramatic. And all of that has been a good thing. But isn't this, some people say, merely economic growth and convergence? It, what's, what's really interesting about this from, say, a perspective of an economist? Because from economics, we know that poorer countries tend to grow faster. And if the income distribution in those countries doesn't change too weirdly as they grow faster on average, they pull everyone up along with it. And it's nice to see confirmation of that in these numbers on the world's economic center of gravity, the change in the poverty landscape. But beyond that, there's not really much more you want to push. Yes, economic growth and convergence, the so-called neoclassical growth model, has helped redraw the landscape, economic landscape of our planet. Hundreds of millions of people have been brought out of poverty. And we, even those who disagree with the narrative about the Great Shift East, the narrative about the rise of Asia, are willing to concede. It's a wonderful thing that has happened. Hundreds of millions of people have been lifted from poverty. All these people have gained better control of their environment, and the impact in terms of their well-being cannot be, you know, it's, it's easy to underestimate. Uh, they have become dignified agents of their own destiny. And in fact, none other than Pope Francis used those words when he spoke at the United Nations to describe this amazing transformation that has occurred. But here's the thing. This story about economic growth and convergence has contains within it seeds of something else. And we go back to, fall back to the original question that's of interest to us. Is the 21st century Asians? Well, the shift in the world center of gravity, along with other indicators that might want to, that someone might want to point to, is suggestive that something very profound is changing in the world. And if you look at it as the poor being lifted from poverty, that all that is wonderful. But not everyone sees these same facts the same way. Because to caricature, this great, this, the shift of the world center of gravity, someone will look at that map and say, you know, I know what's going on there. Because look, the, at the end of it all, India hasn't done very much in the last 30 years. Japan has stagnated for the last two decades. What's driving this shift in the world center of gravity is the rise of China. Now we get to something interesting, the, argue, the narrative goes, because China's rise is not just neoclassical growth and convergence. China's rise is a challenge 
to the established order. It's a challenge to the established order. And there are people who write that competition between the old order and the potential new one, or even more bluntly, competition between America and China is inevitable. We will go to war, these people write. And at first you might think, hang on a second, who says things like that? I mean, we're just celebrating how hundreds of millions of people have been brought out of poverty, the world's poverty landscape has changed. Who goes into these chain, large changes in the world and digs up these kinds of things? Well, actually, a lot of people. Because a lot of how we view that great shift piece in terms of world you know, center of gravity is in terms of pictures like this. This is a picture from the front page of the Financial Times a couple of years ago when it was only apparent, when it became apparent that China's rise was actually going to lead to a situation where not just the world center of gravity was shifting, but more bluntly, China was going to be a larger economy than the United States. And in terms of purchasing power parity, it's already done that. And in terms of the acknowledgement about that rhetoric that I said, that I said, uh, that I caricatured, well, they're actually very serious writers, people that I respect hugely, who use language not a million miles different from the one that I said you know, isn't it crazy that we should go around looking for these kinds of things and how the world has changed? John Mearsheim, the well-known realist at the University of Chicago, you know, this is exactly what he says. And just to be clear, I'm not, I'm not saying that this is how Americans think of the world, because Chinese scholars, some Chinese scholars think of the world in exactly the same way. Xue Tong Yan, who is, you know, who has to be the dean um, one of the deans at Tsinghua University. He too is a well-known realist, and he thinks about how the world has changed in almost exactly the same way that Mearsheim uh, describes this. And just to be clear, it's not just political scientists. You know, I come from a tribe that's economists who want to ignore that there's something called the 21st century and you know something called China. But even the economists, let me just quickly jump to, even the economist newspaper, talks about the possibility of danger in this scenario. This is from uh, an opinion piece in the Economist newspaper from just a few months ago, where all the rage was the internationalization of the R&D, and the Economist newspaper puts it on the line. You know, internationalization of the R&D, together with the possibility that R&D might become the world's reserve currency, is a threat to the international system. It is a threat to the United States. Because for all the nice things that China says about peaceful rise, mutually beneficial development, all the lifting out of poverty, redrawing the global poverty landscape, China is an adversary. It's an adversary because it is an autocracy, it's an autocratic regime with a political system that we don't understand. Historians who study this describe it as the Thucydides that this shift in the world order is not something benign like neoclassical growth and convergence, simply people being lifted out of poverty, because Graham Ellison and others who've studied uh, some of the historical evidence on this says that the statistical regularity is that bloodshed results when you see this kind of a challenge to the established order. Now, to be clear, I'm not defending any of these people. I'm not going to, you know, and I, there, there might well be statistics, there might well be statistical issues with the Thucydides trap analysis that would be interesting to go plow into. And at some other occasion, I hope we can talk about that. But that's not my point here. My point here is not to, dis not to defend this body of work. My point here is to say that something that economists thought was relatively benign, in fact, not just benign, but beneficial for the world, turns out to have embedded in it all other kinds of implications that only by looking at what the other social sciences have been worrying about, we actually come fully to realize. And the thing about this, when I say I'm not defending these people, I'm also not attacking them. Because what they're doing, in their view, is science. The same way that economists want to use science. Because when Mearsheimer or Yen or other realists describe how the state of the world is moving in that trajectory, they start out with a certain axiomatic basis for what nations do, what nations are engaged with, nations concerned for their own survival. They start out with a certain description of the environment, and that it is an implication of their model 
that conflict erupts. It is the same kind of thing that economists do. I have no you know, issues with either trying to defend or attack this. Just saying that this is a particular view of the world. And it's a particular view of the world that I want to try and construct possibilities around. Because the view of the world that looks at this is that there's no hard feelings. Don't, it's not China attacking the United States, the United States attacking the legitimacy of the Chinese regime. It is nothing like that. It is cold and clinical and neutral. It is just a description of how great powers behave in the race for survival, the survival of hegemons, of potential hegemons. And in the discussion on this, there's often an appeal to what economists will recognize as a zero-sum game or prisoner's dilemma type situation. And the conflict between, you know, the conflict in the realist view between China and the United States is simply a conflict that we well understand, both from studies of the Cold War and from game theory. For a particular structure to the payoff matrix, for a particular structure in the game form, it is an equilibrium outcome that individually rational players will end up attacking the other side, even if it ends up leading to a mutually destructive situation. Moreover, compounding all of these issues is what economists might recognize as the competition for global leadership in this configuration of world power is that of a winner-take-all kind of a contest. Typically, economists and many other social scientists like to say, well, competition is a good thing because it, it, it provides the best value for the demand side that the supply side can come up with. It leads to survival of those that, can, that are well-provisioned to provide goods cheaply to the market. But even, even in economic studies, there's something very peculiar about the conflict situation that we've just put ourselves in because the nature of the conflict here is that of a winner-take-all contest. The person who comes in the hands of the realist analysis, the nation that comes out on top, the hegemon, gets to write the rules of the game. And if you get to write the rules of the game, you get to dictate outcomes in a way that others don't. There is a prize at stake, and that prize is you get to issue the world's reserve currency, you get to write the rules of the game, you get to be the one that configures the international regime in a way that, that suits you. So that's the background, and those are the facts, and that's how other people have thought about this. Now, if we, are, if we remain at this level, then the entire discussion of whether the 21st century will be Asia's comes down to a recitation of facts. It comes down to say, who is now the bigger power in the world? Is China or Asia now a bigger power than the United States or the transatlantic axis, as we saw in that map of the world? It comes down to a power discussion. And in fact, many authors think about the distribution of power, think about world order, and think about the possibility for a global power shift entirely in terms of capacity, in terms of the ability of the hegemon to effect its will in the world. Why? Because it's the one that's economically most powerful. It's got the strongest military, it's got the best universities, it's the university system, have scholars that win the greatest number of Nobel Prizes. All the science, practically all the science Nobel Prizes in this narrative have been won in the West. Until this last year, no Nobel Prize in the sciences has been won by China. And yes, China's citizens, nationals, have won prizes in literature. And the possibility that Asia has won prizes in Nobel Prizes in peace. But everybody knows those aren't real Nobel Prizes. The only real Nobel Prizes are in physics, chemistry, and medicine. And those have been the preserve of the West. It's the West, the United States, that issues the world's reserve currency. Now, if we were having that discussion, then the answer to the question is the 21st century Asia's, despite the world's center of economic gravity shifting, would be no, because on all of these measures of capacity, it is still the West that rules, to use Ian Morris's phrase. So as we run through this, this, this well-established argument of global power shift, and asking whether that 
the 21st century is going to be Asia's, we, this, is the, this is where we stop. And we run through an argument about how it is the, mili the military capacity of the United States remains supreme. Whether you range from the realist position or ones that are middle of the road to liberal internationalism, uh, writers like John Eikenberry, all of this discussion is about how the capacity of the West, of the United States, to effect its will in the world remains supreme. You know, this way of thinking makes us describe the world in this way. The, wo the world of global power is one of trying to change this map. And this map is not going to change as long as all of these economic, military, intellectual, financial dimensions remain firmly in the West. So this is where I want to try and say we should have a different kind of discussion. Because, you know what, to my untutored ear, one that did not grow up with realists, this discussion about global powership veers closely to an argument about might makes right. It is an argument that says we've got the greatest capacity, therefore we, America, the West, we are the leaders of the world. That's why the 20th century and the 21st century are Americans. We can and therefore we will. That's from a, from a descriptive type of position. That's, that's a fine narrative. But you know what? Maybe that's not the right narrative because let's remember that the United States came to own the 20th century not because it argued might makes right, but because it argued even after we, the United States, defeated our enemies, our job was to construct an international system that was inclusive and open, that we brought everyone back. As long ago as the 1960s, when Henry Kissinger asked Tr President Truman what it was that Truman would be most proud of for his presidency. Truman said, yes, you know, we are, we, the United States, are one of the world's most powerful nation, no question about it. But what we take pride in is our humane and democratic values. This is not a might makes right kind of a narrative. The American century, when it began in the late 1950s, early no, in the 1950s, carried a narrative that Harry Truman himself continue to describe. It is our democratic and inclusive values that make us a great nation, not our power and not our capacity. Truman and others at the beginning of the American century did not, were not Conan the Barbarian. They did not carry a narrative for how their power came from crushing their enemies. However, that rhetoric has changed. The slide that I showed you of the Captain America graphic that Economist newspaper used to describe Joe Nye's description of power and many other descriptions of power. The American narrative has changed. It no longer has this idea that it's humane, democratic, providing global public goods to all of humanity. Instead, it's become a narrative of power. It's become a narrative of us versus them. And when President Barack Obama himself last year described the Trans-Pacific Partnership, it was a description, not of how the Trans-Pacific Partnership would continue to lift the landscape, would continue to change the landscape of, of human poverty, would continue to lift hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. It wasn't there. It was about, this is ours, and we can't let countries like China write the rules of the global economy. It's a completely narrative today in the American century than it was at the beginning. And I want to argue that this means that you know, our discussion, our description of global power and world order, if we're going to continue simply on a might makes right kind of a, a trajectory, that's why world order doesn't work so well. And if that's why world order doesn't work so well, we need to reopen whether the 21st century will be Asians. What are the qualities to admire? world order. What is it, what problem should world order set out to solve? 
So you see, this is kind of how I came to writing down my, the Ramsey problem that I began the talk with. Because it seems to me that our discussion of world order is one that's reached a certain kind, certain kind of limits. You know, if our discussion about power continues to be one of who's got the greatest might, well then we get one answer to the question, but it's then a description of a world order that's very different in character from the one that began the American century. So I wanted to go back to first principles. I want to ask, what can power do? What should power do? In other words, what is a rational world order? And to do this, I turned to a document that was none other than the American Declaration of Independence. I looked at the Lockean principles that described America's Declaration of Independence, what made America a country. It was one where the government sets out to solve a particular problem. The government governs because it attracts the consent of the governed. It is a legitimate government. It does not talk about having the machinery of liberal democracy that makes this happen. It's much more interested in the end result. How do we construct a global governance system that attracts consent of the government? What we should be thinking about is how do we provide global public goods in the world? How do we attack? defend ourselves against the problems of global climate change, keep global communications secure, protect the world from pandemics, maintain an international financial system that's stable. Thinking about the world that way leads to an alternative set of facts that I want to quickly run through before I come back to our problem and tell you my solution to it. Thinking about world order now, not just as in who's got the biggest guns, who's won the most Nobel Prizes, but in terms of this, I would argue, more interesting, more fundamental scheme of thinking. How do we provide global public goods? What do we need to do to attract legitimacy? What do we need to do to attract the consent of the government? That leads to the question, is the United States now, or the established world order now, what best provides for stability in the world. So let's run through just some facts very quickly. Here's a graph of per capita GDP in different countries. The graph that, the feature that I want to draw your eye to is the green line. That's the per capita GDP of Singapore. Singapore is a tiny nation state, five million people. Half the number of people that ride the London underground with me every morning. What makes it interesting? What makes it interesting is that this was a nation state that people, no one thought would, would survive or succeed. Today, it has a per capita GDP that exceeds that of the United States. It's got a technical expertise and a way of thinking about how it provides public goods to its people in a way that works. How, what did we do to come out of the global financial crisis? Was it the United States that remained the hegemon that kept international financial markets stable? This is a graph from IMF's World Economic Outlook tables. It shows in the five years surrounding the global financial crisis, which country grew the most, added the greatest amount of global GDP that kept the world economy afloat. It ranks countries, not in terms of how, much, how big they are, but in terms of how much they added to world GDP over the period of the global financial crisis. Right on the left that you see is number one, that number one country is China. China, between 2008 and 2012, contributed four and a half trillion US dollars, measured at market exchange rates to the global economy. Three times what the United States did. And market exchange rates, China is half the size of the United States. But basically, it, together with a range of other emerging economies, is what kept the global economy afloat. Today, Germany's largest export market is no longer the United States. It is East Asia, all of developing East Asia. If we worry about how in the European Union that's mired with a sovereign debt crisis that we haven't been able to work through, how has Germany been able to find the demand for its products, given that the United States is also not, has not <coughs> been growing at great shakes? Well, what Germany did was it sold to the East. In other words, Eastern demand kept the German economy continuing to grow. And then finally, this narrative about the relative size of the G7 and the emerging economies. So very quickly, let me show you a plot of the percentage or fraction of separation 
between the G7 economies as a bloc and the emerging economies as a bloc. For most of the last 50 years, that gap has been large. In throughout the 1980s and 1990s, in fact, the G7 economies, taken as a whole, were almost double the size of the emerging economies. You'll notice that after 2007, that gap has shrunk dramatically. So that by this year, the emerging economies and the G7 are practically co-equal in size. What does this all lead to? It leads to how there is a change in the global economy, one that we, you know, some of us will have been looking at really hard, but one that's not necessarily brought all together in exactly this way. Final piece of evidence, and then I'll conclude by showing you again the Ramsey problem that I solved. Suppose that, you know, suppose the world were a democracy. Democracies, among other things, ask where does the majority, what, what is the view of the majority? What should we do to take care of the well being? majority, not of the richest people, but of the majority of people, because one person, one vote. That's the beauty, among other things, in democracies. Well, if we ask the question, where do we find the smallest circle that would encircle a simple majority of the world's population? It is not on the transatlantic axis. It is not simply India. It is this circle. This is a circle that is the smallest circle on the surface of our planet that contains 50% of the world's population. I constructed this by finding 100 square kilometer plots of land where people live and by cross-tabulating CIA databases with uh, Google satellite pictures, I was able to calculate exactly the distribution of the world's population and the tightest circle where people live is this circle. So centered on Shan State in eastern Myanmar a circle 3,300 kilometers in radius, covering less than one-sixth of the world's land area. It is this circle that, well, what should, what should this world, what, what should this simple majority, how should this simple majority figure in our discussion? If we're going to be solving problems that advance the well-being of humanity, among other things, we should be taking care of people in this part of the world. So I think that Facts indicate that the world economy, together with a range of other considerations, make us think that there's something compelling about Asia. Not just because Asia has got that number of people, it's got that number of GDP growing at a certain rate, is potentially going to win however many Nobel Prizes. Not because of any of those things, but because if we think about what the basis for world order ought to be, it should be a rational basis that does good for humanity. Okay. Now that's a little bit uh, that's a little bit woolly still. So let me try and describe in closing how the economists approach uh, how an economist might approach this problem. So I begin by thinking world order should be viewed like any other economic commodity. It is a commodity for which there's supply and there's demand. And the supply of world order is what most of our narrative in international relations has been about. It's about how whether the United States is powerful enough to you know, uh, counter the proliferation of nuclear power in rogue states. It asks whether the United States is a large enough economy to stabilize international financial markets. It asks whether the Federal Reserve System has the wisdom and the tools to try and stabilize the global economy. It's about capacity. It's about the supply side. And all of that is exactly right. But that's also why we got stuck there when we said, this is as far as we can go with the standard narrative. Now, what I've tried to introduce in this, in a sort of roundabout way, is that we should be thinking not just of the supply side, but of the demand side. World order is an economic commodity like everything else. We've been simply focused as a, as a discipline on the supply side of it. What's the demand side? Who demands world order? How does it take care of people? And that last picture that we saw ought to make us think, if world order was written in such a way, in a winner-take-all kind of a contest, that the number one global power, the hegemon, then got to run the rules of the game in a way that advantaged itself, well, 
if not clear that it satisfies, it, it's not clear that it's doing the right thing in terms of the demand side. A simple and demand narrative is a good thing, I think, to inject into this discussion. But it can only take it so far, because obviously it doesn't take care of the externalities. It doesn't take care of global public goods, which is what we want world order to provide. The simple economics 101 approach to demand and supply curves does not, you know, is not able to internalize these deficiencies. Moreover, the winner-take-all nature of this market makes us sus suspicious of a, of a demand and a supply model for world order. Well, this is how we solve the problem. We set up what the English mathematical economists uh, described that then subsequently became known as the Ramsey problem. We asked what kind of a tax transfer growth economy do we need to put in place that maximizes the well-being of our citizenry, in this case the world, subject to conditions about resource constraint, internalizing externalities, providing global public goods. So this problem, which is the problem that I began with, was my, dis was my description of most my description of how I came to the answer to this question. What is, is the world, is the 21st century going to be Asia's? I want to argue that it, the discussion of the 21st century Asia's is a problem of global power shift, is a problem about world order. This Ramsey problem is the way to think about it. Let me tell you the solution to this problem and then conclude. Here's the solution to the problem. When we solve that problem in, I think, what are reasonable ways, the solution does not show unipolarity. It does not say, let's give all the power in the world to one side of the world or another. It doesn't say that the United States should be the unipolar hegemon, and it does not say that China or Asia should be the unipolar hegemon. Instead, what it describes as solution that looks like outsourcing of hegemony. It says that you want to take care of different global public goods. You want to provide that in the most efficient way, less waste, least wasteful of resources, resources, in a way that provides the greatest good to humanity. Don't give all the power to just one nation. Outsource the different dimensions of it. Make the Singaporeans provide the technical expertise on regulating and running financial markets. Make the United States be the security officer of the world. Make China design the bridges and the railways and the infrastructure. And when you look at that solution, this outsourcing of hegemony, it actually makes a lot of sense. The reason that we've come into thinking about world order in terms of unipolarity or multipolarity, think about what that, how you would describe that to someone who wasn't a political scientist, who wasn't an international relations scholar. That person listening to you would say, why is it that we think that the same country, the same individual who is a good basketball player should also be an effective software engineer? Why is it that we think that the country that's the most effective security officer should also be the one that invents and maintains telecommunications <coughs> infrastructure. These are all different goods. These are all different responsibilities. Shouldn't we be outsourcing them to that part of the world that does them best, rather than try and invest them all together in one country? And the reason, I argue, given this solution, why we have spent so much time talking about conflict in the world, is that we've been solving the wrong problem or solving a problem subject to the wrong constraints. We have been thinking about hegemony in the world as being a solution to the problem of world order because we think one nation ought to be the power that wins the winner-take-all contest and then gets to write the rules of the game for everything. Instead, the economic perspective on this is to say, instead of making world leadership, world order, hegemony, global power shift, so exciting that we view it as a gladiatorial contest, what we should be doing is making it as boring as possible. Make it like trying to design an efficient civil service. World order should be the most boring thing. We should be giving jobs to different people, different countries that are destitute. 
not trying to decide whether America or China are going to go to war against each other. The world should not be structured in this way. And it shouldn't be structured in this way either. There's a narrative that's emerging that says that China will eventually become like the United States. It will be the world power. And just as when I was a student, and everyone said you had to go to the United States, do everything you can go to the United States. If you can't get a job there, for goodness sake, marry an American. Make sure you get to the United States, because that's the land of opportunity. Well, one day, we might see bags like this. And I think that would be the wrong solution as well. So let me conclude. What have I done? I've taken through some facts, cumulative facts about the changing landscape of world order. And I've used those facts, this empirical evidence on economics and other things, to reflect on capacity and power. And I've tried to suggest that our discussion about world leadership, whether the 21st century will be Asia's or will remain the West, if it's going to be based only on capacity and power, we get only so far in that discussion. Instead, we should broaden it up to what were the original aims of those who designed governments centuries ago, which is governments to serve the people. And in this case, we're talking about world leadership, world order. The people is 7 billion of humanity, these tight circles that we can draw on Earth. And we've become mired in a discussion of global leadership that takes seriously the lessons from economics, from zero-sum games, prisoners, dilemma, winner-take-all competition. And we have forgotten that actually, much more interesting from an economics perspective or from a design engineering perspective is the Ramsey problem. That Ramsey problem leads us to a solution for world order that, yes, says that parts of the 21st century will be Asia's, but not for the obvious reason. It's not because Asia will be winning the Nobel Prizes, will have the greatest guns, will be where the world center of gravity is, but because this is how we make world order both successful and boring. And the job that we have to do is to continue to solve these kinds of problems and in the real world engage in the social science scholarship that take seriously the institutions that we need to build. And look at new rules of the game so that world leadership is no longer a gladiatorial contest. Thank you very much.